Hello, and thank you for joining us on the Stay Healthy Knoxville podcast, brought to you by Simply Physio, aimed at helping you live an enjoyable, fit, and healthy life in and around our community of Knoxville, Tennessee. And now, here is your host, Dr. John Mark Chesney. Hey guys, welcome to Stay Healthy Knoxville and our episode. Today, I'm super excited about our guest. We have Dr. Joe White. Um, He is joining us. He is uh, originally from Cincinnati, Ohio, but spent most of his uh, life in Florida. And he is a local ENT physician. He's earned his undergraduate and medical degree at the University of South Florida and then went on to do his residency at Southern Illinois School of Medicine. Dr. White knew from the beginning of his medical journey that he wanted to work in surgery. He was especially attracted by the instruments and tools involved in ENT. He has a special interest in the management of sleep apnea, which we're going to talk about in detail on the episode here today, as well as sinusitis and chronic sinus diseases. Dr. White is trained in transoral robotic surgery, which is something that can be performed for sleep apnea and also other advanced sleep apnea surgeries. Uh, When he's not working, he's enjoying outdoors, mountain biking, kiking, soccer, backpacking, traveling. We actually had to reschedule one of our uh, original podcasts because of a golden retriever event. So he has two golden retrievers as well. So Dr. Joe Wyatt, welcome to Stay Healthy Knoxville. Well, thank you. I really appreciate being here. I'm glad that I can be a part of this. I think this is a great service that you give to Knoxville and I look forward to talking to you today. Yeah, awesome. Well, I love to start with each of our guests to really just understand, you know, particularly with, with you, with, you know, getting into medicine, what drew you into medicine? Kind of take us back. Yeah. So I, I wish I had a very interesting kind of Marvel origin story, but it's it's not that interesting. So basically, I wanted to be a doctor ever since I can remember. And my mom would tell you that since six months old, I wanted to be a doctor. And so that's kind of what I did. I became a doctor because that was always what I was going to do. But I'm very happy with my career choice and really happy with what I'm doing. Nice. Well, as you were, I mean, going from, I guess, being a doctor, and that's actually kind of similar, I guess, to some of my story too, is, is a physical therapist is, um, at least when I was in high school, I was like, okay, I, you know, you go through some sort of, you know, career counseling with the guidance counselor and, yeah. and I remember taking some sort of test or something that, you know, shows you what you're going to be good at. And, and I was like, and I was going through some physical therapy even for myself at the time. And I was like, man, this could be a cool job. And I just kind of kept on that path. Stuck with it. Yeah. So it sounds like you kind of had a similar journey, if you will. I really did. I actually, so University of South Florida, where I graduated, they offered kind of an accelerated medical school program. It was a seven year program. And so actually in high school, I actually went through the whole ringer of kind of going into medical school, kind of going through the interviews and things like that and getting accepted from high school. So it was kind of a preordained thing, even through undergrad. So yeah, very similar story. I kind of always thought I was going to be a physician and that's what ended up happening. Wow. So you said you were accepted into medical school when you were in high school? Yes. As long as you hit these kind of criteria throughout undergrad you're automatically accepted into medical school. And that's kind of what I did. What drew you into, I mean, maybe just generally speaking, like medicine, you said that you kind of had this, you know, from a very young age, you kind of, you knew you were going to be a doctor. I think playing with doctor's toys was my favorite thing to do. My mom would tell you that from six months old, that was kind of my thing. And so I kind of stuck with it and everybody told me you're going to be a doctor. And I think it became Uh, kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. I know you have some, I guess, medical profession. I guess your parent, you were telling me beforehand that your parents 
own uh, therapy, a rehab, a mm-hmm. pediatric rehab, or there are other kind of medical professionals out of in your um, sphere? My, my mom was a mental health counselor. My brother is a pharmacist. My sister is actually a CRNA, but I'm the actual first physician. So okay, I guess we're all kind of medical, but not a lot of doctors. <laughs> nice. That's I mean that's similar to my story. I got a, a lot of dentistry on my side. Yeah. My father and brother. And sister's a hygienist and um, sister that's a counselor and I'm a physical therapist. So it sounds yeah similar in that regards of some interest in health generally, yeah. like over uh, with the family. So you kind of knew that you wanted to, I mean, attracted to being, you know, a doctor. And, and then when it came to, you know, getting, I guess, closer of, of age where you're making like decisions, how did that process kind of go for you as far as medical doctors? You know, there's all different, you know, directions you can go with something yeah. like that. You know, I wanted to go into medicine and I actually didn't know what I wanted to do in, in medicine. Um, and so I was accepted and I always thought that I was going to go into kind of just being a general practitioner. Um, I thought that was where my future was going to go. And the way that medical school is structured, you know, the you do these rotations, right? Mm-hmm. And my last rotation I decided was actually my surgical rotation. And I didn't know I was going to do surgery. I thought I was going to do medicine. So I ended up uh, loving surgery as my final rotation. I had to kind of scramble into something that was both medicine as well as surgery. And ENT is a really nice mix of both of those. And that's kind of what led me down this route. Hmm. Is the the surgical rotation of never been through medical school. So is that they have kind of everybody go through a surgical rotation? Mm -hmm. So in medical school, you have to go through kind of programmed rotations. And normally it's medicine, which is like internal medicine, kind of hospitalist stuff, general surgery, where you do kind of three months of general surgery, OBGYN, psych, and kind of all like the normal stuff. And then you're supposed to decide what you want to do. But most medical students have kind of decided by then. Um, it's more difficult the later you decide because you kind of have to do research and do all this stuff to get into your desired field. So you kind of, it sounds like you were heading one direction and then like, ooh, the, kind of flipped a bit there at the end. Exactly right. It was a, it was quite a scramble, but it ended up working out and, and I'm very happy with it. Nice. So surgery. So you had a strong interest in surgery. I imagine many people maybe would have a, an opposite reaction to wanting to do surgery. What is it? Yeah. What is it about surgery that really drew you in? You know, I, I like working with my hands, but more importantly, you know, chronic illness is difficult to treat. You know, as a primary care provider, you're treating a lot of chronic illness. And a lot of times you're giving a blood pressure medication or you're giving a diabetic medication and it can take months, years to kind of see the results of that. And the nice thing about surgery is, is a lot of times you go in you fix something and the patient's better. And so I, the immediate gratification of that was kind of what kind of drew me in that, you know, you can actually go in and fix things right away. Yeah. Um, and medicine, you just don't get that satisfaction. Sure. Yeah. And I know, you know, I mean, you were sharing right before we started recording about even a, a case um, that you had surgery of this morning and, you know, I could see, uh, I don't know if you want to explain a little bit about it. <laughs> um, you're removing a voice box for somebody who had cancer, right? Yeah. And just even witness, like I could see, like you, you were um, telling us that, you know, that they, you know, checked the pathology and it was clear, the margins were clear. And, um, yeah, you could just see the excitement on your face. And I'm, I'd imagine that's a lot of that experience is something that you, you get in surgery. Like, like yeah, that. it's actually a lot of fun to do those types of surgeries, like removing a voice box. And then it's, it's more fulfilling when you find out that the pathology is all negative and sure. you know that this patient is no longer going to have cancer, you know? does make you feel a lot better. Yeah. 
So we're kind of progressing along like your kind of journey into medicine and medical school. And and then, you know, you, you develop a real strong interest like with surgery. And that's still a pretty broad um, category, right? So kind of take us kind of through that even development into like ENT specific. So I spoke earlier about how I thought I wanted to go into medicine. I wanted to be kind of like a primary care provider. I do like the interactions I have with patients. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, general surgery, you don't have a lot of interactions with patients, you know, coming to the hospital with your gallbladder, it needs to be taken out and the surgeon takes it out and then you go about your way. Well, with ear, nose and throat, we're a combination of both clinic and surgery. So I'm able to kind of see patients in clinic. I medically manage a lot of patients. In fact, I like medically managing patients as well. But, you know, sometimes medical management fails and we talk about doing surgery and we can go that right route as well. So I really like the aspect of having both medical and surgery. um, And that was kind of something that uh, ENT offered me. Nice. Nice. So you went through uh, your residency in Illinois and now you're in uh, Knoxville. So tell us a little bit of how you ended up in Knoxville. So I always knew I wanted to move to this area. My brother lives in Silva, North Carolina. It's about 45 miles from here as the crow flies, but it's about an hour hour and a half long drive because you got to drive kind of all around the mountains. We looked at Asheville, North Carolina, and there just weren't a lot of viable jobs there. And then we looked here in Knoxville and there was a really nice practice that I really appreciated. So uh, we decided to kind of interview here. We fell in love with the practice, fell in love with the city, and we really like it. Yeah. What's the name of the practice? It's Greater Knoxville Ear, Nose, and Throat. Okay. All right. So with all you guys yeah, listening... Yeah, check them out of there. I, th- I believe it's the maybe the largest group of ENT physicians. We are the largest group of ENT physicians in town. We're based really out of University of Tennessee Medical Center as well as kind of North Knoxville. Okay, but it's not necessarily considered like UT ENT. We are the UT ENT group, so there is no UT ENT. Okay, it is us. Gotcha. So there, we don't have UT on our name. Yeah. But if you go to UT and get an ENT doctor, it will be a Greater Knoxville Ear, Nose, and Throat doctor. Okay, awesome. Well, yeah. Well, thanks for sharing. I know we are going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we are going to talk specifically about sleep apnea. It's one of Dr. White's specialties, and uh, so we're going to get deep into the topic of um, sleep apnea. All right, appreciate it. Stay Healthy Knoxville is sponsored by Simply Physio, a physio clinic that equips and empowers you to live your life to the fullest so that you can enjoy the things you love to do and be the person you are made to be. Simply Physio specializes in helping people get back to a healthy and active lifestyle, living free from pain and medication and avoiding unnecessary surgery. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to receive a special gift from Simply Physio and enjoy listening to the rest of the episode. All right, well, guys, welcome back to Stay Healthy Knoxville. I'm here with uh, Dr. Joe White, local ENT, and uh, we're getting into the topic of uh, sleep apnea. And we were talking before the break about how your group has the largest number of ENT physicians, but how you guys don't all practice to do the same thing, right? And starting to develop like uh, just niches, subspecialties. And so sleep apnea is one of yours, correct? Yes. Awesome. Well, yeah. How did you get into even sleep apnea as far as that, that niche, if you will? So when I was in residency, we did do sleep apnea surgery, but it wasn't something that I kind of grabbed onto. You know, what happened was, is I came here to Knoxville and one of my partners, Alan Rosenbaum, actually was uh, undergoing training or was going to a training service for a new sleep apnea surgery. And this was, which we'll talk about later, which is called that hypoglossal nerve simulator. And he kind of just casually asked me if I wanted to come along. 
And so I kind of got coattailed into this and we went and I got trained with this. And ever since then, I've been kind of focusing on sleep apnea more and more and kind of dedicating more of my practice to it. So I think I, I have Alan Rosenbaum to thank for kind of bringing me along on this. Awesome. So I appreciate that. Yeah. And then, um, and I was doing a little bit of research just about sleep apnea before the podcast. And, you know, one surprising statistic, you could maybe tell more just how prevalent it is, or maybe even underdiagnosed it is. Definitely. Um, there's studies out there that think that 30 or 40% of the population potentially have sleep apnea and maybe even more with the obesity rates that we have here in the United States. Sure. What is sleep apnea? Tell us maybe a little bit more there and then we can get into the yeah, treatment so, options. So let's start talking about sleep apnea. So what obstructive sleep apnea really is? Um, well, actually what sleep apnea is, is there's kind of two types of sleep apnea. There's obstructive sleep apnea and central sleep apnea. And obstructive sleep apnea occurs, and that's the one we're going to talk about the most because it's the most common. But that occurs is, is what happens is when we go to sleep and we get to the deeper levels of sleep, you know, it's normal for the brain to kind of relax the muscles in our body. And as you relax the muscles in our body, it causes them to collapse inward. And as they collapse inward, you can't get as much air from your mouth to your lungs. And so a whole bunch of things start happening. So if you can't get as much oxygen to your lungs, the amount of oxygen in your blood starts dropping. Your heart has to start pumping harder to kind of increase the oxygen to the brain. But eventually what happens is, is, is your brain says, hey, I'm not getting enough oxygen and kind of wakes your body up. It arouses you. So most people who suffer sleep apnea, you're going to have them kind of say that, you know, they'll kind of wake up out of breath or sometimes they'll kind of just wake up and, and not kind of not get to the deeper levels of sleep that they need. But what this does is it makes it so that these people who suffer sleep apnea never get a good night's sleep. You know, they're always kind of falling out of deep sleep and going into lesser sleep. And so they're always tired. There is another type of sleep apnea called central sleep apnea. This is kind of occurs when the brain kind of forgets to tell the body to breathe, but it's caused by a whole different host of things. And, I, and we're not really going to talk about that today. Okay. <laughs> you said that's not near as common. Not near as common. As yeah. obstructive sleep abstru apnea. Exactly right. So I'd imagine that maybe some difficulty with sleep apnea is it occurs when you're sleeping. So there's not as much conscious awareness of what's going on. So it has to be diagnosed based off of maybe symptoms that people are having. Exactly right. So people who have sleep apnea, most of them don't know that they have sleep apnea. They'll kind of just tell you that they have a bunch of symptoms. And most of those symptoms will be kind of, I'm tired all the time. You know, I sit in a chair and I fall asleep right away. I'm constantly fatigued. I'm irritable. And these symptoms they've had for a very long time, and they've probably had a huge workup for fatigue. You know, they've had every lab work and they've had everything. But really what's happening is, is they're just not getting a good night's sleep. And so that's what's causing most of their medical issues. Sure. And are there other things that I, I'm sure there are that you look for or it would maybe predispose somebody towards sleep apnea? Yeah. So one thing we've kind of already touched on, but being overweight is a risk factor for sleep apnea. One of the biggest risk factors is actually kind of the circumference of your neck. So having a thicker neck, shorter neck makes you a higher risk. Also, when you kind of look in their mouth, you know, if they have a big tongue or something back there that's kind of blocking the airway, you know, big tonsils. If you have big tonsils, that can predispose you to sleep apnea as well. You know, in children, you know, big tonsils is the number one reason why they have sleep apnea. So you take out the tonsils, it fixes the problem. So, yeah, there are some things that certainly predispose people to uh, sleep apnea. I didn't even think about even children. Yeah. Is that something that you that you see frequently or is, is the actually, tonsillectomy kind of the main treatment for it? Exactly right. So as an ENT, we actually treat a lot of pediatric obstructive sleep apnea and it's fairly common. You know, there was a, a recent study that came out a few years ago that looked at patients that had been treated for ADHD 
and they were on medication and they found that their symptoms actually improved after taking out their tonsils. And so, you know, what that means is, is that children who have sleep apnea, you know, they're not getting a good night's sleep. They're tired, they're fatigued, they may be more irritable, but they also have less attention span. And because they have less attention span, they're more likely to get a diagnosis of, let's say, ADHD. I'm not saying all ADHD is caused by sleep apnea, but there are some, certainly some cases out there. And that would be something as a parent that I would look at if a child did have ADHD and they had big tonsils and they're snoring and they have possible apneic episodes where they're kind of stopping breathing. I think getting a tonsillectomy or at least being evaluated would be a reasonable option. Yeah. So that's the, for children, that's the main treatment. Exactly right. Is a tonsillectomy. Tonsillectomy is the main treatment for sleep apnea in children. And it works most of the time. Now that there are more obese children, though, there are more children going on CPAP after they've had their tonsils removed. Okay. And that's just because they have this, they have the same pathophysiology as kind of what an adult would have. Sure. Sure. So, and, you know, you mentioned that um, weight, you know, can, is a, is a uh, large contributing factor as well with uh, sleep apnea. Uh, but even some just, it's somebody could have a large gut, belly, yeah, but they may not have it in their neck. So it's, may, it's, it's really um, particularly like the neck. It's the neck circumference. And you can imagine that your airways, if your airway is kind of stretched out and you have all these muscles, because everybody has the same organs, the same muscles in there. Yeah. So if your neck is really stretched out, you have a long skinny neck, you know, things just don't have a way to collapse in there. But if everything's kind of piled on top of each other, you know, things can collapse and cause more obstruction in the airway. So, yeah. Sure. And then if, so if sleep apnea goes untreated, what are the consequences or the ramifications? So there's a lot of uh, kind of long-term risk factors for untreated sleep apnea. It's been correlated with increased coronary artery disease, increased hypertension, so higher blood pressure, uh, increased pulmonary disease. Uh, it's also been correlated to uh, kind of in more obscure rates, kind of more mental health problems and things like that, just mm. because you're not getting the sleep that you would have otherwise. Yeah. yeah, I imagine, I mean, sleep, you know, we talk about with our patients kind of like the pillars of health, right? And yeah. one of them is sleep. Yeah, right? Having a good night's sleep changes everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's such a huge you know piece that you're getting quality um, and, quant- you know, the right quantity, but also quality. Quality is very important. Yeah. So we just talked about if it goes like untreated and, you know, a few other things um, you'd mentioned already as far as uh, higher risk for um, like hypertension. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions that I was looking at uh, when I was doing some research is the question was, can sleep apnea cause hypertension or is it kind of vice versa while we're on that topic? So I think if you were predisposed to having hypertension, I think having sleep apnea will make that worse. I don't know the correlation actually of, of those two things. Sure. But I guess you were explaining earlier that um, when, if you're if you're not getting good breath and you're having difficulty breathing because of some obstruction when you're sleeping, that it can even force the heart to what work yeah, so harder. Yeah, the, the heart is going to have to beat harder to yeah. provide your brain with more oxygen. So that's going to elevate your heart rate, which ultimately will elevate your blood pressure as well. So yeah. it, it will predispose you to that. The other thing it can cause is something called atrial fibrillation in some patients too is by causing your heart rate to elevate, it can kind of make a, it can be a risk factor for AFib as well. So many medical problems coming from sleep apnea. Sure. So, you know, as um, listeners out there listening to this and maybe suspecting like, hey, I, I don't get good sleep. Um, you know, I'm, I wake up, you know, in the morning and I've, you know, I've been in bed for, you know, eight hours, eight, you know, just a decent amount of time and I'm having fatigue and these other things. So, what would you advise somebody who's maybe wondering, 
if they do, like what's kind of the next step? So there's only one way to diagnose sleep apnea at this point in time, and that way is with a sleep study. And so there's really two types of sleep studies that we use. You know, the first one is the most accurate. It's called the in-lab sleep study, and you have to go to a sleep doctor to do one of those. I do sleep surgery, but I do not do sleep medicine. I know that's a weird thing to understand. So there are certain doctors who just do sleep medicine and they do sleep studies and they do kind of all the intricate, complicated things of, of sleep medicine, you know? They're kind of like the the brains of sleep and I'm kind of like the technician, you know? <laughs> I'm the technician of sleep where I kind of help out kind of from the surgical front. But going to the sleep doctor, they will order a, a sleep study, which you will either do in lab or at home. And sometimes at home can be a nice screening sleep study to kind of tell if you have sleep apnea. And then maybe you'll you'll move on to getting an in-lab sleep study to kind of get the finer how severe it is and kind of what we can do from there. Sure. So that would be kind of that, that first step is is usually ending up with kind of talking with a sleep doctor. Yep. And then I'd imagine if if that's not working, that's usually when surgery is indicated, right? Exactly. Okay. So the, the sleep doctor, which I think is probably part of your next question, is is, is how do they treat it? Mm-hmm. You know? So the standard of treatment is something called CPAP. I think everybody knows about continuous positive airway pressure. Um, there's a couple of different types of PAP, CPAP, VPAP, variable PAP, or BiPAP. This is where it kind of breathes in and out for you. But the point is, is that, you know, we we talked about earlier that, you know, your throat is collapsing down when you're sleeping at night. And so CPAP or continuous positive air pressure blows air into your mouth, into your throat, kind of balloons the whole thing open. So air is able to move from your mouth to your lungs again. And it is curative if, if it does work, if it, if it functions well. I don't know if this is a question that you can answer if, or not, but as a, as a therapist, because we, we talk a lot about sleep positions mm-hmm. and, you know, more for like dealing with neck pain or back pain, but is there a, a better sleep position? That's an excellent question. So whenever you have a sleep study, you know, they'll actually move you around hmm. and see where your sleep apnea is worth, whether it's on your side, whether it's supine laying flat. Okay. And so you'll find that most people, if they're completely flat, their sleep apnea is going to be worse than when they're on their side, mainly because we haven't really talked about it, but your tongue is fairly large and it's mm-hmm. a big muscle and it likes to fall back and obstruct your airway. Yep. So if you think about how can we move the tongue, mm-hmm. laying on your side is better. You know, if you sleep standing up, it's better. You know, gravity will force the tongue down as opposed to back yeah. um but or some sort of in, maybe an incline an, an ankle and, and so you can actually see that on sleep studies you know when you get a sleep study it's really the we kind of look at the, how how many apneic episodes and hypopneic or, or half apneic episodes that you have throughout the night and you know they'll measure it in supine they'll measure it in these different positions and you can see kind of and, and sometimes the sleep doctor will say well just sleep like this and you should be okay yeah awesome so yeah, we kind of talked about the, the, I guess, the more conservative management with some sort of breathing apparatus, yeah. right, um, to assist you at night. And then when that doesn't work, I guess, why would that not work? Yeah, so about 70, I mean, there's a lot of studies that look at this, but somewhere between 50 and 70% of, of the population tolerate CPAP and love it. Mm-hmm. Almost everybody knows somebody who went to a sleep doctor, got diagnosed with sleep apnea, took home the machine, tried it the first night and fell in love. You know, mm-hmm. you know, it's the first time they've gotten sleep. They have more energy. They're very happy. And that's great. You know, if CPAP works, I totally recommend CPAP. That's my recommended treatment for, for sleep apnea. CPAP is the best treatment. Mm-hmm. But about 20% of the population, it just doesn't work. So, you know, 
sometimes you get claustrophobic. You can't have it on your face. Sometimes um, you remove it right when you start sleeping. You know, you're an active sleeper. You move around a lot. And so it's it's just not going to be something that works for you. And so that's the population where sleep apnea surgery or, or, or other options come into play. And there are some other options besides CPAP. One of which is, a, um, you know, you can go to a dentist and a dentist can give a kind of an oral appliance that's approved for mild sleep apnea. That can help about five to seven points on your AHI, but it's not going to help moderate to severe sleep apnea. So those people are really looking at surgery. Sure. So we're kind of getting into your bread and butter, right? Yes. So tell us um, a little bit more, like when it even, so uh, when it comes to surgery, you know, somebody's gone through the steps and still not sleeping and just, you know, failed the other measures. So, so then our office talking with you and are there still decisions to be made? Yes, definitely. So okay. we've, we've kind of have a lot to talk about, you know, I, I always tell patients that historically sleep apnea surgery, it's really changed over the last five years. And that's because of the surgery that we're going to talk about here today, mostly, which is the hypoglossal nerve simulator. You know, historically sleep apnea surgery really involved removing tissue from the throat and kind of opening the airway like that. Hmm. Um, and they found that, you know, you could remove about a lot of tissue. So you don't have as much tissue in there. It's very painful surgery. But they found that over five years or so, that sleep apnea tended to come back, you know? Just the tissue would come back. Tissue too. would come back, yeah. you know, people gain more weight or yeah. whatever it is. But over time, the, the data seems to show that, you know, despite having this surgery, that things would come back. So there, there's a whole bunch of sleep apnea surgeries that we used to do a lot of that we don't do as much anymore just because they don't work as well. There are some other things that we do that I evaluate you when you come in. So if you come in with sleep apnea and you're non-tolerant to CPAP, I will take a look at your airway, okay? So I'll look at kind of how things collapse, what things looks like with you awake. I'll even take another look at your airway with you asleep. I know that's a little bit more difficult, but I actually have you take you to the operating room and we give you some medicine to make you sleep. And then I pass the scope in your nose and kind of look at your collapse pattern just to see if you're a candidate for the hypoglossal nerve stimulator or see if you're a candidate for anything else. And so that's part of the workup for the hypoglossal nerve stimulator is undergoing that drug-induced sleep endoscopy is what it's called. One other thing that's important to note is that for a portion of the population, they don't tolerate the CPAP because a large portion of wearing CPAP is having it blow air through your nose. And some people have too much what's called nasal resistance, meaning that if you have nasal obstruction, um, that can also make it difficult to tolerate your CPAP. So by fixing a septum or straightening the septum or opening up your nasal passageways, you can also improve um, the breathing that way. And then get back to the CPAP. And then get back to the CPAP. So that's always, I always tell every patient that, you know, not everybody wants a a stimulator put in their body. You know, we can still try to work you and try to get you to tolerate CPAP. And so if if that's an option, I always try to do that. Right. So you kind of briefly mentioned the hypoglossal nerve stimulation. So that's, that's the surgery. Uh, I guess we want to get into a little bit more detail of like, what is that? And what is, and you mentioned a, a stimulator. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about that procedure and our technique treatment option. So I talked about earlier how old sleep apnea surgery was all about removing tissue and mm-hmm. kind of opening the airway. Well, I like to kind of explain hypoglossal nerve stimulator or, or upper airway stimulation as trying to replicate what your airway is like when you're awake. You know, when you're awake, you're breathing fine. You have no trouble getting air from your mouth to your lungs. But the second you fall asleep, those muscles, they relax, they paralyze. So if you can add tone back to those muscles and allow them to move, that can open the airway. And that's kind of the idea behind the hypoglossal nerve simulator. So the hypoglossal nerve is the nerve that goes to the tongue. It controls protrusion of the tongue. 
And we know that the tongue is the largest muscle that collapses. It's responsible for most, almost 90% of patients' sleep apnea when it collapses backwards. And so we know that if we were to put an electrode, which is, this is a surgery where we install a pacemaker-like electrode into the chest, and we tunnel a wire all the way up to the tongue base, and we put it on the hypoglossal nerve, the electrode also, or the device also has a sensor where it can detect every time you take a breath. And so we know that if you can detect the breath and then you cause the tongue to, to stimulate and protrude out, it can pull the airway open, opening your airway, allowing air to move from, as I said, your mouth to your lung and kind of fixing the problem in about 70 to 80% of patients. Hmm. Wow. And so it's able to detect when you're asleep? So it does not detect when you're asleep. You actually, it has a timer on it, a latency period where you're asleep. But most people who have it, they don't really notice it's even on when it is on. So when you say latent, like, how does it, how does it know to activate? I would be like, hey, is this thing going to start busting at me? Like when I'm yeah, so, asleep, <laughs> forcing my tongue to do weird things. Um, so basically it, it, you put a timer on it. That's how it kind of works right now. Okay. So like when you're going to, to bed, say like, hey, I usually fall asleep within this amount of time. And that time is the same for almost everybody. Okay. It's every single night. Okay. Yeah. It's consistent per patient, per patient. not the same for everybody. Right. Because yeah. my wife and me, I'll fall asleep like that. <laughs> when I, I think last night we were reading the kids a story and I was almost asleep. <laughs> I was doing the wrong one reading too. <laughs> my wife had the opposite sleep kind of stuff, <laughs> getting to sleep. So kind of getting back. So, so yeah, so you would just set that you wouldn't turn or I guess have it set so um and hit it like an on switch so it has a remote control okay yeah and has a remote control that you can set a timer to the newer ones are going to have an app they're bluetooth um but not everybody has those ones yet yeah but yeah so you have a remote control you turn it on and then you fall asleep and then it detects every time you take a breath every time you breathe pulls your tongue out which pulls your whole airway open getting a nice solid breath in. And then you just turn off when you wake up? Most of the time it, you have a timer on that as well. Okay. So then you don't mind hours, it. And, then, and, and with all honesty, I've had patients tell me that, you know, they'll get up in the middle of the night and forget about it and then they don't even notice it. So it's it's a real, it's it very well tolerable. You know, like it's it's amazing how much humans can get used to things. Yeah, it's not like you're getting <laughs> shot by electric fence or something. <laughs> Except, no, yeah, <laughs> you can't really feel that. So yeah. Nice. Well, um, and you said this is a um, relatively recent advancement in the yeah, medical field. Exactly. So the this started all, um, the initial trials were from 2010 to 2014. It's called the STAR trial. That's where they came out with all this data that we're talking about here. And so, uh, and then up until, you know, up until 2018, really you had to go to a huge center if you wanted this. And only now up until, uh, is it really available in, in smaller cities like Knoxville, I you know, there's three surgeons in, in Knoxville who do it. So, and all of them are good. Yeah. And then you said, um, I think, I don't know if you said on the recording or not, but Inspire is kind of a, a name that people yeah, may know so by. Or? It's the hypoglossal nerve stimulator is done by Inspire. That's the company that makes the the device, that makes the the pacemaker, and, and they're responsible for, they're the only vendor in the, of this in the United States. So yeah, so Inspire is the uh, kind of the brand name. Okay. Awesome. Well, yeah, that's um, a lot of great information. And I'm, I'm sure just as, you know, listeners are, you know, listening to this that uh, are interested in the topic to kind of go from, you know, point A to, you know, I guess understanding about the issue to understanding kind of where along their the path they may fall, if mm -hmm. you will. Yeah. And uh, having a, an appreciation for kind of all the different options with that too is kind of wrapping up the the um, hypoglossal nerve stimulation. Is there anything else that would be that people ask about or that would be important to kind of cover 
um, as well. I just wanted to kind of say how impressed I have been with the hypoglossal nerve stimulator and with Inspire. You know, I've, I've done sleep apnea surgery for like six or seven years. And the patients I get that have been activated with the Inspire are some of the happiest patients I've ever had. You know, I had a patient about a week ago who told me that she honestly told me this, that she told me that if she would have gotten the hypoglossal nerve stimulator 20 years ago, she says she feels like she would be a successful person nowadays Hmm. because for the first time in her life, she feels like she can get up, she can do things, she can be active because she's had untreated sleep apnea for 20 years that CPAP wasn't working. And now she feels like a new person. So it's, 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 it's quite rewarding to hear that from a patient. And so Um, um, it is impressive. Um, you know, I've seen people with severe sleep apnea go to normal and they are just living totally different lives before and after. So it's been, uh, it's been a good journey for me as well to kind of see that. As you mentioned that to you, I just had another question. Like, is the unit itself, uh, does that last? 10 years. 10 years. Okay. Yeah, and then so you just have to do a replacement or just a little knows? battery replacement. It takes okay. 15 minutes. Okay. Uh, so not too bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, awesome. Well, yeah, thanks for sharing. Um, wanted to transition. We, we love to finish the podcast with uh, some questions I ask all my guests that have a Knoxville flavor okay. to it. So the first one is, tell us something, Dr. White, something that's on your bucket list to do around the area, Knoxville, greater East Tennessee kind of area that's been on your bucket list. I want to go to the Dolly Parton, I guess the Dixie Stampede. Okay. I've never done it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I also wanted to do, um, there's a trail in the Smoky Mountains called Gregory's Bald. Um, okay. You can only do it in June. I guess it's June or early or late May where they have the fire azaleas. Yeah. I've been wanting to do that as well, but I've just never, every time that the bloom is happening, I'm like out of town. So yeah, I've never seen the blooms. I've been up on that. Have you been on the trail before? I've only done half the trail, but okay. we went back, but I would love to do the whole thing. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a hard, I think there's a few different ways you can go up. I've always done it from North Carolina. I think you, I don't know if you can get there from Case Cove. It's Case Cove. That's the, okay. yeah, it's like a trail off to the side. And there's maybe a road at some time that's open. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's, I think it's a seasonal road that you can get up pretty close to it um, too. But yeah, that's a beautiful area. And I'll tell you, um, the Dixie Stampede I went to a long time ago, but the pirate show, they have a new pirate show. Is that one good? It is good. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's put on by, I mean, Dolly too in her group. So I uh, went, I think two years ago and that's a pretty fun show too. Just more acrobatic kind of things cool. um, versus the Western kind of theme. So <laughs> have to check it out. Yeah. But what's one of your favorite things, places to go outside around Knoxville? You, know, you love the outdoors. So you got a free afternoon or free Saturday. Um, where would you find you outside? I like hiking. I've, we've already talked about this, but one of my favorite things to do is I like to do house mountain with my dogs. Okay. Because um, I know it says that off leash is not allowed, but. You know, if you go on a weekday, nobody's there. Yeah. <laughs> and I do off-leash with the dogs and they just love it. They're so happy. And so nice. around Knoxville, that's definitely one of my favorite things to do. Yeah. Awesome. I've actually never done House Mountain. That's, oh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's great, actually. Yeah. Can, it's been on one of my bucket list, I guess, <laughs> is to get out there. Awesome. What about a favorite restaurant, place to go out to eat? I actually like a place called Asia Kitchen. It's on Kingston Pike. Their twice-cooked pork and Szechuan fish is amazing. Hmm. I, I've eaten it, you know, asking me my favorite restaurant, I eat for a living you know <laughs> i do medicine and then i eat okay um and so that's like you know it's a hard question yeah you know, what's your favorite band is always a hard question sure. you know but uh time and time again asia kitchen those two dishes that's where you take somebody if they're visiting yes it's very good yeah <laughs> yeah awesome 
And then um, what is your best tip and recommendation for staying healthy? Maybe if we're kind of focusing on the sleep apnea um, kind of side of things. So me personally, I hate working out. But the way I get around that is, is, you know, I hike a lot. I paddleboard twice a week. I kayak. I mountain bike. You know, there are other ways of working out, even if you hate working out. Yeah. And I think that's also important. Yeah. Finding the, the thing that helps to get you up and moving. Exactly right. <laughs> right. Oh, great. Well, um, last thing, how can people get in touch with you? If they, you know, want to pursue or uh, figure out some sleep apnea type of stuff. Yeah. So I, you can get in touch with me for sleep apnea. The Inspire website is actually great. You can connect to me there. You can always call my office at 521-8050 and get in touch there. It is always recommended, though, that you have a recent sleep study before we even talk about Inspire, because you're going to have to have one if we're going to go that route. Sure. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I've learned a whole lot about sleep apnea, so I appreciate you coming on, Dr. White. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, stay healthy, Knoxville. Thank you for tuning in to the Stay Healthy Knoxville podcast, brought to you by Simply Physio. If your pain is preventing you from staying healthy and active and you'd like to avoid surgery, pain medicine, or just want to get back to doing the things you love in and around Knoxville, we offer both a free ebook and free over-the-phone consultation to help you figure out the root cause of your pain and the next best steps for resolving it. Find our ebooks online at simplypt.com/health-tips. There you will find ebooks for topics such as neck and shoulder pain, lower back and hip pain, knee pain, and TMJ. These quick-to-read reports will provide you with expert tips, tricks, and exercises to help solve your pain from the comfort of your own home. Just visit simplypt.com slash health-tips to download your ebook and have it delivered directly to your inbox. We also offer free, no-obligation phone consultations with a doctor of physical therapy to Knoxville area residents. Just call us at 865-351-0615 or visit us at simplypt.com and click the Talk to a PT button on the home page to schedule a call with us. Thanks again for joining us, and we will see you next time on the Stay Healthy Knoxville podcast.